We all remember where we were September 11th, 2001. We remember the shock that we felt as we watched the events unfold on television. We felt hopeless. That literally nothing we could do could stop what we were seeing, and it only increased as the North Tower of the World Trade Center burned. We hoped that it was just an accident. Some freak thing that, that a plane somehow crashed into a building, but I think we kind of all realized this is bigger than that. And this was put to rest only 18 minutes after the first plane hit when the second plane crashed, this time into the South Tower. As we tried to process what we had, had just witnessed, we heard reports of a third plane crashing into the Pentagon. Now at this point, none of us felt really safe. We were under attack at this point. Three coordinated attacks and then a, a fourth plane that crashed into a field in Pennsylvania that was brought down by brave men and women all brought us to our knees. See, many of us felt lost, confused, and, and angry at the same time. We, we couldn't stop what was happening, and many of us wondered if we were the next target. Now, September 11, 2001, I lived where I grew up in Virginia Beach, Virginia, and if you know any of that history, or the, the geogra geographic culture, the Virginia Beach is directly next to Norfolk, Virginia, which is the home of the largest naval base in the world. 80,000 Men and women in uniform reside in this metro area. Of course, we were thinking we're the next target. They, they got D.C., now they're coming after the military. And by God's grace, and thankfully nothing else happened after that point, we mourned, we wept, but we went back to our normal lives very quickly. Work, family, entertainment, but our lives were forever changed. Not only do we have memories of that day, life after September 11th is very different, and if you wonder, well, how? Go fly on an airplane. Sometimes we spend more time in TSA lines than we actually do in the air. Now, regardless of your political persuasion or your opinions on our involvement in wars abroad, the actions of September 11th led to things that went on for about 20 years, wars. And in addition, we have leaked documents showing extensive wiretapping and surveillance done, all coming with a heavy price tag. Now, I'm not making a political point here, so don't, don't hear me on that. And, and I'm saying that Christians can disagree with each other on these political issues. The point here is that life is different than it was 20 years ago. Very different. Our way of life was altered by four airplanes uh, filled with hijackers and, and ruthless terrorists who are bent on killing innocent people. Life is not the same. This is one of the turning points in history. We've experienced changes, but not like many countries have. Faced with daily terrorist threats, certain countries have had to deal with this in different ways. And by many, in their opinion, the United States is considered the great Satan. That's one of the things that we were called. We're tied together, lumped together for political reasons and for other reasons with the nation of Israel. Israel often is also called the great Satan. 
It's interesting to know that the nation of Israel today, not the, it's not the same as what we see in Scripture, but the nation of Israel today and the, the people, the Israelites in the Old Testament, there is a common bond here. Thousands of years have separated the two Israels, if you want to call it that, but they're both the target of hatred by their neighbors. Like Israel of today, Israel of the Old Testament was hated and attacked from all angles. And this is what we see happening in the book of Obadiah. What we felt on September 11th is similar to how the, the people of Israel of this day, 2,500 or so years ago, this is how they felt every single day. And you say, why? Well, history shows that the people of God have always been the targets. The people who follow the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, the God who is, has fulfilled all of his promises through his son, Jesus, it's a target. Obadiah is the shortest book in the Old Testament, only 21 verses. It was written about 586 B.C., soon after the armies of Babylon destroyed Jerusalem. As this was happening, the Israelites were fleeing the city of Jerusalem. They were trying to get away to, to save their lives. And outside of the city, the people of Edom were there, ready to capture them. And what did Edom do? They returned them to the Babylonians. But this wasn't the first example of Edom's antagonism toward Israel. In the book of Joel, Edom is accused of violence against the people of Judah. But their violence went even further back than this, if you can remember the struggle between Jacob and Esau in Rebekah's womb. And in Obadiah, we see a warning against Edom for the violence against God's people. Their judgment is coming. See, no one's going to look at you strange if you can't find Obadiah, by the way. Look at your table of contents. No one's going to be pointing fingers at it. At two pages, it's difficult. But I know some of you right now are wondering, why such a strange book of the Bible? Why, of all books, Obadiah, it, it is the least read and the least preached and the least studied book of the Bible. And so some of you are thinking, well, this is just what Ryan does. He's just this weird guy. He tries to pick the weirdest books of the Bible, the ones that no one else reads and preaches from that. And that's partly true. I, I, I'm tempted to do this simply because no one else does. It's the least popular book of the Bible. And even Jesus, he quoted a lot of the Old Testament, never once quoted anything from Obadiah. It's an obscure book, but it's still God's word, is it not? This is still inspired. It's still inerrant. It's still God's word, as every other word of Scripture is. So we don't gloss over these books because they're short or they don't make much sense. Or the cultural references don't really work in our minds. And so some may be thinking, well, this is, could be teaching something more exciting. It's still God's word, but how is it relevant for us today? Well, one commentator said this. The book of Obadiah brings an important message about oppressors and the oppressed, betrayers and those who've been betrayed. Arising out of a time of national crisis, it has a word for innocent bystanders and also for survivors. As we go through this book for the next few weeks, um, what begins in our minds as hate and uncontrolled anger is what we see here. 
We, we see this anger towards Edom. The Edomites were evil people coming after innocent people, taking advantage of their suffering. And we see that transformed into a beautiful example of God's perfect justice. It's my hope that you can gain from this book not only knowledge and a greater understanding of God's character and his justice, but you'll see who God fiercely protects, his people. Now, I want to start by saying this, and this is kind of a weird way to start a sermon. You're probably not going to understand most of these references. That, that Obadiah is obscure, but a lot of times when you see in the Old Testament, in the prophecies, because thousands of years have, have gone between the prophecy being made and our current stage now, cultural references get lost. A good example of this, if I were to write you all a letter, and somehow that letter was preserved, and someone read this letter 2,500 years from now, and I talked about streets, and I talked about the football at Alcoa High School or Maryville High School. We all know what that means. We all know that they're powerhouses. We, we know the references, but 2,500 years from now, if Jesus has not come back, football's probably not going to exist, right? We're going to be flying around in space suits or whatever. I don't know. The cultural references would be lost on someone 2,500 years from now. But you can find out what those references are. When we study scripture, when we dig through God's word, we see the meaning come out, but we also need to study the culture of the day. We need to study the history. We need to study scripture that also interprets, interprets other scripture. And this is why reading the Bible without a context or without an understanding of the culture will leave you discouraged and confused. It's kind of like reading one of those car manuals if you're like me, I know nothing about cars. You can hand me one of those car manuals, and I have no idea what any of it is. But God's word doesn't return void. When we put the effort into study, when we dig deep into God's word to see those cultural references, God will bless us. So I'm not discouraging you today, telling you can't read God's word. I'm, I'm telling you to read it for what it says. If the Protestant Reformation taught us anything, it tells us that we can read God's word. We do not need a pastor to tell us what to believe. We can read it in our own language and interpret it for ourselves. But don't starve yourself. A book like this, even as short as 21 verses, it requires work, it requires effort. Books like Obadiah require research to understand its full meaning and what God wants us to know. And his riches are magnified when we do that. Just as a brief side note. And as I stated earlier, uh, Edom was a small nation that descended from Esau. And if you can remember, about a year ago, we studied this, Genesis chapter 25, uh, Jacob and Esau, this is, everything points to this, this moment in history, Obadiah's prophecies are about those same people that Esau birthed. And so Jacob and Esau started this battle, and we saw that they reconciled, but their people didn't. And many years later, we get to this point, where the people of God, Israel, and Edom are at odds with one another. Edom means red. And if you remember when Esau was born, he was red all over. 
The land of Edom was built on natural fortresses of, of high rocks that were impenetrable by their enemies. If, if, if you've ever seen a picture of Petra in Jordan, or maybe you're like me and you've never been there, but you've seen Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade, you know Petra, the, 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 in the middle of a, of a valley of rocks that, that get really narrow at points, they, they carved an entire city into the side of the mountains. Not many ways in, and armies couldn't come in because there was, at some points in the path, only two or three people side by side could walk through. So it was a natural fortress, Petra was. Edom was similar. They were protected by the mountains. They, they built their cities into the mountains so that neighboring, neighboring countries or neighboring people could not come in and attack. It was a, a wonderful plan. And because of their protection, they got arrogant. They, they believed that no one could harm them. They believed that they were safe forever, that, that there is not an invading army that can come and do any harm to them. And as we've seen already, the tensions began in Genesis 25, but there's a whole bunch of scriptures that are written about this relationship as well. Numbers chapter 20, verses 14 through 21, you'll see how some of the tension existed long before Obadiah's warning. Hear, hear the word of God here. Moses sent messengers to Kadesh to the king of Edom. Thus says your brother Israel, you know all the hardship that we have met, how our fathers went down to Egypt and we lived in Egypt a long time. And the Egyptians dealt harshly with us and our fathers. And when we cried to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. And here we are in Kadesh, a city on the edge of your territory. Please let us pass through your land. We will not pass through field or vineyard or drink water from a well. We will go along the king's highway. We will not turn aside to the right hand or to the left hand until we have passed through your territory. But Edom said to him, you shall not pass through, lest I come out with a sword against you. And the people of Israel said to him, We will go by the highway, and if we drink of your water, and I and my livestock, then I will pay for it. Let me only pass through on foot, nothing more. But he said, You shall not pass through. And Edom came out against them with a large army, with a strong force. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory. So Israel turned away from him. For Samuel 14 we see that Saul, as king, fought against Edom. In 2 Samuel 8, David conquered this land. In 1 Kings 11, we read about a man who was part of the Edomite royal family when David conquered this land. He escaped during the fighting and later returned under the rule of Solomon to be an adversary. At times in Edom's history, they were subject to Judah, while at other times they were independent. In the fourth year of King Zedekiah of Judah, Edom set aside their hostility toward Judah and became allies against Babylon. Edom must have done something in the meantime that we don't see in Scripture because Obadiah's wrath comes after that, or his prophecy of God's wrath comes after, and Obadiah says, you will be judged for what you've done. Israel was and is still an enemy in the eyes of many surrounding nations. This history helps make more sense of Lamentations 1, where we read this. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become, she who was great among the nations. She who was princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. 
they have become her enemies. Edom's not mentioned here in Lamentations 1, but we can be certain that they were part of this. The enemies of God's people. The enemies of Israel. The enemies of God. In verse 1 in our text today in Obadiah, he gives a word that's heard from the Lord. The message was a call to attack Edom. Because this message came from God, it can be seen as a, a, a call for people to join with him in the judgment against God's enemies. The people of Edom had gone against the Israelites and had done great damage to the people of the city. It's kind of like the story we all know, David and Goliath. What did, what did Goliath and the Philistines do? Uh, giant, and uh, among giants, and they come in and say, you can't defeat us, just give up now. Bring your warriors, we'll defeat each and every one of them. Goliath stood tall. They mocked God. They laughed at the apparent easy victory. But they didn't realize that the God they mocked was the God who would bring them down. And we see in verses 2 and 3 of our text today that Edom, like Goliath and the Philistines, would be brought down from their seats on high. Look at verse 3. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who lived in the clefts of the rocks. In your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? They thought they were out of the reach of their enemies. They said, we've, we've got security. We've, we've got the natural barriers. We, we have an army that's strong. We, we're never going to be defeated. It's a well-guarded place, not an easy place to attack. They figured they were forever safe. And like the Philistines... Edom's arrogance blinded them from seeing the truth. That while human armies may struggle to defeat Edom, God cannot be defeated. A little shepherd boy beating a giant, right? These, these, these Israelites who have caused so much trouble for us, they can't do anything to us. We, we saw them running like cowards out of Jerusalem. We captured them. It, it, we, we lost no men. We, we sent them back to Babylon. Who are they? And who is this God that they worship? If this God was so powerful, if this God was so strong, he, they would have gotten victory by now. Who are they? And who is he? Obadiah says they will find out. They expected that no one could bring them down. They were drunk on pride. Who can bring Edom down? Look at verse 4. Obadiah says, Though you soar aloft like an eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Eagles soar high. They nest on the tops of the mountains. And they swoop down to catch their prey. And this is how Edom felt. If there was a mascot of Edom, they would have been the Edom eagles, right? They were the ones swooping down and killing all of those and taking land from all of their enemies. They were powerful. But God says, I will bring you down. Edom was guilty not only of celebrating the pillaging of Jerusalem, they were also guilty of assisting in the, in the attack, preventing the people from escaping, joining in the looting, and then rejoicing in the suffering of God's people. Does this sound familiar to you? It should. Though some of us have argued in the past, and maybe even now, that 
because we're Christians, everyone is out to get us. There is some truth in that. We are public enemy number one for many people. Um, there are entire websites and forums devoted where you might be the only Christian and everyone else is attacking you. There are places in public where you speak up for Jesus and you may even be arrested. There are places all over the world that if we were doing what we're doing right now, every single one of us would be subject to the death penalty. And so I, I say that, I say that persecution, I don't use that lightly. We know that there are, are Christians in, in the Middle East and Asia who are being murdered on a regular basis. And here in the United States, we don't face this daily threat, but we do face threats of our own. We risk losing our job if we're open about our faith. We risk being imprisoned or, or losing status in the community if we speak up not just about Jesus, but about what Jesus says. We're hated by many, but Jesus said that would be normal in the life of his followers. And Jesus said, they hated me first, so take it as an honor and a privilege for you to be hated as well. We're not facing death for our faith. And so even the talk of persecution here makes me a little uncomfortable, but, but suffering is relative, isn't it? We're not used to it, so anything that prevents us from doing what we want to do, it's, it's a stumbling block. It's, it's a form of, of persecution. And so back to this text, we know that Israel dealt with this all of the time. They were the, the light, the shining light on the top of a hill. They, they were the ones that were proclaiming the goodness and the glory of God. They, they were the torchbearers. They were the ones pushing forward. They were the ones leading the way to bring nations to repentance. But they were just like us. They were afraid. In, in their case, they were afraid of every day that Edom would come down from on high and attack them and kill them. Always looking over their shoulders. And in many ways, we are also similar to the Israelites here. If you've read through the Old Testament, you see this pattern that we've spoken with from the pulpit many times, but it's a pattern that we see all throughout Scripture and all throughout our lives. Take the Israelites. God chooses them to be his people. He says, you will be my people. And, and, and he blesses them, and he gives them sustenance and everything that they need. But it becomes stale. Their, their desire for more causes them, leads them to worship something or someone else. They take their eyes off of the truth of God's word and they move to what they believe is correct. They do what's right in their own eyes. And so what happens then? God is angry with them. God says, I've given you everything that you have and yet you still turn your back from me. And he sends punishment that they earn through their rebellion, which comes in different forms. Uh, wandering in the desert, being attacked by another nation. And then the Israelites realize the error of their ways. They, they climb back to God and beg him for forgiveness. And God accepts their pleas and gives them help. And then it goes back to the first step of the cycle. Over and over, we see this pattern repeated in the Old Testament with the people of Israel. And we see that in our own lives, too. Things get good. We say, well, God's blessed us. 
Rarely do I hear someone who's in the middle of suffering saying, God is so good to me. When you're in pain or you're in great suffering and nothing can fix it, most people do not say, God is just so good. It's natural for us to wonder, where is God in this tragedy, right? God, why aren't you intervening? Why aren't you stopping this? But what happens is we often say when things are great, when money's rolling in, when family life is good, when church life is good, well, we say, God has blessed me. But you know what happens? It gets easy. The challenge is gone. And when the challenge is gone, we become apathetic or lethargic in our faith. And I'm speaking from my own experience, we become lazy believers. We, we don't look first to what God says. We, we start looking inward and we start to see what I want, what we want, until it all crashes again. And then we run back to God and beg him, Lord, I'm sorry. God says, you're my child, I forgive you. All your sins have been wiped away. And we get excited until the apathy sets in again. This vicious cycle of faith that we all go through is the same vicious cycle of faith that the Israelites went through as well. And we see it over and over again. And I say that we're really no different than what we're seeing here. You say, well, this is 2,500 years ago. There, there's such a, a, a difference in time and culture, certainly, that we, we're really not the same, but we are. Do you not know what God has done for you, Christian? God says, you're my people to the Israelites, and God says, you're my people to the church. He said, I've chosen you. God says, I've adopted you. God says, you are my people. And if you're a Christian, God has, has done that. He's given you the rights and the privileges of being his son or daughter. And he, though he promises difficult times for us, he's promised that he will be there to help us in times of need. But what do we do? We rebel. Maybe it's our affluence and the fact that we don't face daily threats of violence, whatever the reason, we get lulled into the thinking that we've figured this whole spiritual thing out. We don't need to pray every day. We don't need to read our Bible every day. We don't need to, to disciple someone regularly. We don't need to do these things. We've got this. And if we could replay in our own hearts all the conversations that we've had with God or all the conversations we've had with ourselves, I guarantee every single one of us can pinpoint those moments where we've said, we've got this. Things are good. I know what I'm doing. But then disaster strikes. We're faced with disaster, something that we can't handle, and the only comfort and help is found in God. So we beg God for mercy and forgiveness. We plead with him to give us a way out of this mess. And what does God do? God hears our prayers. But the cycle continues when things calm down and life goes on. Those of you in church after September 11th, you remember there were more people here. Every church had more people until life started to get normal again. And what happened? The attendance went back down to what it was September 9th, 2001. Because life 
went back to normal. The, the threat was gone. People were seeking after godly things, seeking after what God is doing in all of this. And then once they seemed to figure it out, people left. And even those who stayed, the apathy set in. The book of Obadiah, as we'll see in the next three weeks, has a theme of judgment against God's enemies. It's a warning to those who persecute the children of God. Uh, the warning is destruction. And this is the hope that the people, the Israelites, can take solace in, and for us as well. Because sometimes it feels like everything's swirling around us, that nothing in the world makes sense. Sometimes it even feels, if we're honest with ourselves, that God is against us. Tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. Suffering upon suffering. And we think, how can a loving God do all of this or let it happen? How in the midst of my tragedy is God not speaking to me right now? How is God not intervening to stop this from happening? And we wonder that. And we question it. But here's the truth. It doesn't come on our timing, but God wins. If we didn't have the promise of God achieving victory, why would we even be here? We'd be blind men grabbing in the dark, trying to figure our way out, but God says here, I will win. Obadiah prophesies this. You will suffer, Edom, for what you've done to God and his people. And the truth is that the faith that Obadiah, through God, promises Edom, the enemies of God, this fate of destruction is the same fate that those who do not trust in Christ will face as well. Why would we want to worship a God who lets sin achieve victory? What would, why would we celebrate a God who turns a blind eye to injustice? No one would, which is why understanding God's justice is so important. See, we recoil when we think about what God's doing in Obadiah. My goodness, how can Edom deserve all of this? Yes, they've done bad things, but isn't God gentle and loving? Isn't God wanting people to repent and turn from their sins? Absolutely. So why would God say, go kill those people? Go after them. I'm going to bring you down. Because it's pointing to the future of those who mock God. Those who reject the sal salvific grace, the gift of salvation from Jesus, will suffer the same fate that Edom suffers. See, all sin must be dealt with. We're, we're guilty of sin just as much as Edom has. We may not be mocking God. We may uh, not be enemies of God's people. But the truth is every single human being is guilty before God because we're not comparing ourselves to each other. We're comparing ourselves to the holiness and perfection of God. And all sin must be dealt with, otherwise God ceases to be perfect and just. And for Christians, that sin was dealt with by Jesus on the cross. And we will see in the next couple weeks that God does win in the end and his people do see victory. And when looking through the lens of Christ revealed in the New Testament, we know that that victory has been accomplished by Jesus. See, these prophecies are not just pointing to a certain people for a certain time and that ends it. No, the book of Obadiah is pointing us to the one who achieves ultimate victory, and that is Christ. For those who have never repented of their sins, the warning to Edom is also the warning to you. 
It's a loud message that you cannot be an enemy of God and go unpunished. The offer of salvation and forgiveness is available to those who see that the wages of their sin is death. But they also see that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. The warning against Edom should frighten you if you don't know the Lord. It promises destruction, but it doesn't have to be that way for you. If you've never prayed to God to ask for forgiveness, the word we use is repentance. If you've never prayed a prayer of repentance and you've never said, I've got faith that Jesus is the only way to God, that there is no other way. If you've never done that, it's not a ticket out of hell. But what that means is that God has been working on your heart and you are responding in repentance and faith. If you've never done that, the promise to Edom is the promise to you that you will be brought down, that you will be brought down from high, your protection will be gone, there is no protection against God's wrath. And it should frighten you. If you've never prayed to ask God for forgiveness, do it now, you do not need to repeat anything from me. You do not need to raise your hand as we close our eyes. You do not need to walk forward. You do not need to do any of those things because you know how to say you're sorry. You know what guilt feels like. The gospel promises that anyone who comes to Jesus with true grief over their sin and has faith that he is the Messiah will be saved. This is what we see in Scripture, and this is the promise that we sing about. This is why we worship God, because he's given us this promise. If God is working on your heart, don't let another moment pass. And for the Christians here, there may be thousands of years separating us from the events in Obadiah, but the promises are still the same. God will protect his people, and he will pro provide for his people. And the ultimate fulfillment of this is found in Jesus, that our biggest issue that we face, and that is the guilt of our sin, there is nothing greater that we face. And the answer is found in Christ. We stand guilty before a just and merciful God. And God, in his wonderful kindness and mercy, gave his son to die as a substitute on our behalf. You may describe your life as full of suffering and pain. You may feel attacked on all sides. You may want to run away to the mountains and hide. But remember that Jesus has already overcome the world for his glory and for your good. The promise in the book of Revelation is that Jesus wins. Cling to the truth of God's word. The subjects of Obadiah's prophecy, Edom, will suffer destruction. And through that, God's people will see victory. Would you pray with me?